Thank you, Reverend King. Trust you are blessed by the reading of God's Word and the opportunity to pray. <clears throat> this evening we are back in Mark in chapter 13. Uh, if you recall, we began this chapter last week. And one thing that stood out to me in my study is, um, and I shared a little bit of this last week, was just the fact that everybody approaches this um, with a degree of caution. And I think that's wise. Um, it, I appreciate the humility of, of men of God, and especially very learned men of God, that approach a text like this with the caution that they do. And I want to keep that tone among us as well as we look at this. I told my wife that, um, I don't know if, if you remember this experience or if you had this experience when you were younger and in school, and you, you come in the, in the fall to a new grade and you think, whoa, this is so hard. This is so much harder than my previous grade that I, just, that I finished in the spring. And, and you get into it and you learn, and, and then by the end of the year, you're, you're a little more comfortable only to, a few months later, to face a new grade in the fall. And... Um, I, I so appreciated um, the help of the Holy Spirit that I felt like was with us last Sunday night as we looked at the first half of this text, and then I got into the second half of this chapter and thought, oh, this is, this is even harder. So I kind of felt like I did when I was back in school. But um, this, is, this is a wonderful chapter. Um, just by, by way of review, remember chapter 13 obviously comes between chapter 12 and 14, uh, chapter 12 and some in chapter 11 um, recorded the account of the controversies within the temple and in the opening verses. And, and I think we'll read this whole chapter. It's, it's a little lengthy, but I think it will be helpful for us to read this whole chapter. And you'll see there how, how the disciples comment about the beauty of the temple. And Jesus says, this temple is going to be destroyed. And, and we talked about that last week. There's... Um, as we said, controversy about this chapter. Was it all fulfilled in AD 70 um, when Titus came into Jerusalem, besieged Jerusalem, destroyed the temple? Is it all about Christ's second coming? Well, if you were here last night, if you heard that message, um, then you'll, you'll know that I took the position and take the position that, that, that significant portions of this text, of this chapter, was fulfilled in history in AD 70. But yet there is something for us to learn, and we should not just separate this into two piles of Scripture um, where we say, oh, that applied then, and that's happened, and this is happening sometime way off into the future. No, there is a connection between these two events, and we need to understand what that is. So I thank you for your prayers. I once again covet your prayers. Um, I'm doing something that, that, as you know, I'm not used to doing, and that is preaching twice in the morning and, and once in the evening. Uh, Pastor Greco is, is a much better preacher than I and does that routinely. Um, and I think I'll pray a little harder for him. And, and I know that you pray for your pastor, so I thank you for that. So please keep the prayers going for Pastor Greco and, and Reverend King and myself. But let us pray, and um, then let's read Mark 13. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, what a comfort it is to us. And Lord, we know that you speak to us in and through it. We, we believe it. Lord, it is authoritative over us. We, 
we trust you. We know that it is inerrant, that you, by your Holy Spirit, inspired men of God as they were carried along by your Spirit to write in the way that, that was consistent with their personality, yet you superintended every word that they wrote, and we thank you for that, Lord. You've told us that your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that you give it to us for our instruction, for reproof, for instruction in godliness, that we, as the, as the men and women of God, may, may be perfect and thoroughly furnished for all good works. Lord, that's what we need. That's what we want. So, Lord, give us grace tonight as we look at your word, even, even this difficult passage, Lord. But we thank you for Mark 13. Bless us as we look at it this evening. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations." And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as... Had not been, has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if someone says to you, if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, 
from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Back in 2005, when my grandmother, my last surviving grandparent, passed away, at her funeral, we, the ten grandchildren, were each given an opportunity to share a eulogy about her. If I recall correctly, I shared something from Proverbs 31 because in my mind she was a woman that, that was a great example of the Proverbs 31 woman. However, a common theme, especially among some of my older cousins that were a few years older than me, was the fact that when they went to Grandma and Grandpa's house, they were keenly aware of their beliefs. And one thing that my grandparents spoke a lot about, especially I think probably a few years before I became a teenager, was the second coming of Christ. And some of my cousins related the fact that they wondered, and especially I think it was in their minds when they were at Grandma and Grandpa's house, they wondered if Christ would return while they were there. It seemed very near, it seemed very imminent. And I recognize that my grandparents probably read things that, that um, were, were perhaps not completely um, square theologically. But I think in general, the church 30 or 40 years ago had a, had a, a more real sense that Christ is coming and that Christ could come at any moment. And I want us to consider this text this morning in light of, or this evening, in light of that, under three headings, the glory of Christ's coming, analogies of Christ's coming, and the certainty of Christ's coming. The glory of Christ's coming, the analogies, two analogies of Christ's coming, and the certainty of Christ's coming. Now, from hearing my outline, perhaps you're already wondering, okay, is last week about AD 70 and this week about the second coming? Well, it's not quite that simple. It's not quite that cut and dried. Especially in the second half of this chapter, we see those two themes interwoven carefully. And I think for good reason. If you notice there in the, in the verses 24 and 27, um, the, the, the first verses of this next set of verses for this week, you see incredible things there. You see the sun and the moon being darkened, stars falling, powers of heaven shaking, the Son of Man coming in power 
and glory. So we have to wonder, what is going on here? Now, if you've read much um, information and, and popular prophecies about the second coming, now you might find all kinds of crazy explanation about this and what that is and, you know, some kind of nuclear holocaust or helicopters or we, we don't know. One thing we have to understand, though, is we, we have to think about the disciples and the readers, the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, how would have they received this? I was listening to um, a friend of mine preach on this, and he gave, I think, a helpful analogy. And he spoke about how if, if, if two people were students of Shakespeare, if they had read and studied a lot of Shakespeare, they would find references to Shakespeare throughout common conversation, maybe in the media, maybe in things that they read. And whereas if, if I hear something about a heart of gold, I might think of the Neil Young song. But if somebody is a Shakespeare fan, they might think of Henry V. I had to read that on the internet. That shows how little of a Shakespeare fan I am. I'm sorry for, for those of you that, that love Shakespeare. I think young people, I'm, I'm motioning to my children, study Shakespeare. It's helpful. But we've got to get in the minds. We've got to think about how did the disciples hear what Jesus just said. Jesus didn't speak these words in isolation. I don't know about how, how your translation of Scripture puts these words. Sometimes they, they indent them to help us understand that Jesus is quoting and referencing Old Testament Scripture. So for us to really understand what Jesus is saying, we have to go back to Old Testament Scripture. We have to go back to Isaiah 13 and verse 10, which says, and, and I'm going to read 9 through 11, which says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So what is, what is going on here? Well, if we, if we understand the context of Isaiah 13, we recognize that, that God is speaking an oracle. He is speaking his, about his wrath that is coming upon wicked Babylon. In the sermon this morning, I, I, I quoted from, or I read from, from Daniel, where, where King Nebuchadnezzar, in all his pride and arrogance, said, Look at what I have done. Well, that was not just true of the man Nebuchadnezzar. That was true of the nation Babylon. It was a nation that was much feared and had, and had killed many, many enemies. And God is saying in Isaiah 13, I am bringing heaven. I am bringing my own creation. His wrath is going to thunder down upon Babylon. That's not the only passage that Jesus references Isaiah 34, 4 says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. What is the context here? Again, it's words of judgment in the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. 
And again, this is a little less clear. It's not a direct quote, but I think it's referenced in what Jesus is saying. It comes in the context of, of a series of woes against various nations surrounding Israel. This message of judgment in particular was upon Edom. As one commentator pointed out, the nation most vilified by the prophets. Behind it could be also Ezekiel 32. Very similar language as Isaiah 13. But this time it's against Egypt. And these texts, as you think about them, and you think about what did the disciples hear? What did, what did Mark's readers hear in this? As Jesus is warning them of judgment to come, whether it was judgment in A.D. 70 at the hands of Titus, if it's God's judgment upon the world at the end of the age, what were they hearing? They were hearing about God's wrath and, and calling the, the, the very heavens, the, the, the stars and the skies, his own creation. He is bringing his wrath against the nations, against his enemies. You think of Babylon and Edom and Egypt, and you think those were like the big three of, of the wicked nations surrounding Israel and those that had terrified the nation of Israel for, for over many years. What is God saying here? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, Jerusalem, my judgment is coming upon you. And as one preacher said, Jerusalem is going to be cast upon the ash heap of history, just like Babylon and Edom and Egypt. Now, I am very careful in saying this because a man I greatly respect said that he is absolutely persuaded that verses 24 to 27 was Jesus was not speaking about A.D. 70. He is speaking about his second coming. However, I respectfully would disagree with him to say, I think he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And you've got to think about what are these men thinking? What are Jesus' disciples thinking? Here, Jerusalem, here, here is the temple, the center of their worship, the center really of their lives is going to be torn down. And Jesus is saying, it's not just a small thing. This is similar to the destruction that he brought upon Babylon and Edom and Egypt. And then he says that you'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Well, what about that? Well, again, we have to look at the Old Testament context of that. And I think we have mentioned it before that it comes from Daniel 7 at 13 and 14, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is, of course, talking about Christ and, and his enthronement. And it is talking about God, um, in a sense, um, it, when, Christ, when Christ was crucified, when he died, when he was resurrected, and when he ascended to heaven and he was enthroned in heaven, all of that is behind this passage in Daniel. 
Also, Jesus said in um, Mark 14, when he was before the high priest and, and the high priest asks him, are you the Christ? He says, I am, Jesus answered. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What I put before you in relation to this is that that did happen. That did happen in the lifetime of the priest because he saw Jesus crucified. In his lifetime, Christ was resurrected and ascended. I think this is talking about Christ's enthronement following his death and resurrection. He is coming in clouds, but it's also in language very similar to what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. That Christ really is coming, and he's coming in glory. What we see in AD 70 is what I started to lay out for you last week. Is that those events are a precursor of what is coming at the end of the age. When Jesus makes these references and supports them with passages of Scripture from the Old Testament, he here, I believe, in these verses we're just talking about, in 24 to 27, are, is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But I think, in a sense, it gives us, it, it should sober us even more than simply saying this is in, in, the, in the distant future. I think this should sober us more to think that, that God would bring destruction and judgment upon his own people for their sin. We talked last week that one of the questions that the disciples don't ask about these events is why. And one of the reasons that I put before you last week was it was a judgment upon the religious leaders. It was a judgment upon those who in that generation rejected Christ. And that was just a precursor for what we will see at the end of the age, when those upon the earth now or at that time and for all time in between have rejected Christ and have not accepted him as their Lord and Savior. Secondly, I want us to look at analogies of Christ's coming. And he gives us two. He gives us first in verses 28 through 30, the analogy of the fig tree. Look with me, if you will, there. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. What do we have here? Jesus is Looking at something from nature, he's saying, look at the fig tree. Look at how it grows. When you see these indications in the structure of these vines, of this plant, it's an indication of something that is going to happen. Just as we said last week, this abomination of desolation, whatever that is, was a marker that Jesus was saying, look for this. When this is happening, something else is about to happen. And he's using similar language in the certainty of the fig tree to say when the fig tree, um, when its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. This is a clear indication of something that happens in time. When you see these things, you know that judgment is near. Perhaps you're a step ahead of me and you're probably thinking, okay, he's going to say that's about AD 70. And that's right. I think that Jesus here is once again giving them an analogy of what's going to happen within a generation. 
just a few years in the future from where we are, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples right there. He's saying, here's an indication. And then he says in verse 30, this generation will see this. Now, some have tried in a, in a lot of different ways to describe how this generation in verse 30 is not actually talking about that generation of Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, those that are, that are asking Jesus and hearing those words when he spoke them. I think he meant their generation. I think he meant it's going to happen in your lifetime. The second analogy is very different, actually. So if you look at verses 34 to 36, he says this, It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. I hope you see the differences between these two analogies. The first one seems certain. The first one said, when you see this, look for this. This one is saying, here is what this is like. It's like you don't know when the master of the house is going to return. You have to be alert because you don't know when it's going to happen. I think Jesus is putting these two analogies kind of side by side to say, in a similar way of the events that are going to come in your lifetime, there's other, other cataclysmic events coming in the future that, that all of Christians until that time have to be aware of and have to be on guard. Notice that the language is much more obscure. Notice also that he speaks of that day in, in relation to what he's talking about in our second analogy. Thirdly, I want us to realize and recognize the certainty of Christ's coming. Because I think that hopefully we are convinced of that. He says in verse 31, Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. Christ is coming. Christ will return. He is the judge of this earth, and he will come back to judge this world. And we are called to be prepared, to stay awake. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, I trust it's a passage that's familiar to you, says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Thessalonians tells its readers there to comfort one another with those words. We do believe that Christ will return. We recited in the Apostles' Creed that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. I think we typically say the living and the dead because that's what quick means. It means the living as well as the dead, not just people that are fast on their feet. But we will all face the judgment bar of God. We don't know when he's returning. No one knows. This passage says, and somewhat to the shock and dismay of some, that not even the sun knows. And without spending a lot of time unpacking that, we have to realize that, that Jesus, when his days upon the earth was 
fully God and fully man, and yet his deity was not lessened, but it was somewhat obscured. It was veiled to a degree. We don't know when Christ will return, but we are to be prepared. In this analogy, Jesus says it's like a man going on a journey. He leaves his servants in charge, each with his work. Each of us has a job to do. The doorkeeper is to watch. And we all, in a sense, should have the vigilance of the doorkeeper. When I um, worked third shift um, back in my manufacturing days, I would get pretty sleepy at work some nights. And I had one job in particular where we would have to drill out these tiny holes in these parts. And um, it was very monotonous work. And it was noisy, and you had to suit up to, to, to keep the, the dust off of you. And it was really hard to stay awake. Staying awake is very difficult when you're really tired and when you're forced to stay up a long time. But Jesus tells us that we are to stay awake. It's a message he repeats in verse 35. Therefore, stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come. And he ends this passage with those two words, stay awake. As we close, I just want to leave you with a few things to consider. Kevin DeYoung puts these forth as five signs of spiritual sleepiness. He says that an indication of spiritual sleepiness one is a weakening, weakening vigilance against sin. Think about that. Have you become numb to your sin? Have you become accustomed to it? Are you liking it too much? A weakening vigilance against sin. He says, secondly, and related, a less frequent conviction of sin. When did you last confess a specific sin to God or to another Christian? If you haven't, it's not because you haven't sinned. It could be because there's a less frequent conviction of sin. He says this, and this one gets me as well. Five signs of spiritual sleepiness. Do you wish other people would hear the current sermon? Do you sit there and listen to a sermon and think, Oh, I wish my wife could hear this. I hope they're listening. Or I hope, I wish so-and-so could hear this. Spiritually sleepy people hear the sermon and think only of someone else. Number four, he says, you used to fear God. Fear manifests itself in a right relationship with the source of fear. And lastly, he says, increased doubt about the promises of God. If you struggle to believe the promises of God, that's an indication of spiritual sleepiness. The promises of God, saints, should comfort us. They should be familiar to us. We should, we should take refuge in them. We should, we should go to the Psalms. We should cry out for grace and mercy, and we should find comfort in God's Word. The commonality among these, I think, is a neglect of God's Word. 
a neglect of the means of grace. And the solution is to draw near to God. We're promised that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And we should draw near to God's people. We should, we should come together as God's people. We should, if we're struggling, we need to ask for help. That's really hard. That's really hard to admit your weakness and, and, and admit a struggle with sin or, or recognize that you just aren't liking these hard providences that God has brought your way. That's when you need the body of Christ. Lean in. Lean into the church, saints of God. Draw near to God. Draw near to his word. Avail yourself of the means of grace. We have the gift of God's word and prayer. We should take advantage of it. Christ gives us this chapter, and, and I recognize that I have not exhausted all the riches of, of Mark 13. And I come to the end of it, and I have to apologize that, that there's much I'm, I'm leaving here. But, but perhaps in the future, the Lord will give us opportunity to, to look at it more in depth. But there's, there's things here we need. It's not just ancient history. Even these things that, that have taken place in history are here for our warning. And there's, 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 there's characteristics of it that carry forward. The, the same God that judged Babylon and Edom and Egypt and Jerusalem is the judge that we will face, that the judge the whole world will face. It's only through the blood and merit of Christ Jesus that we can face our judge unafraid. But I think there's an imperative for us here. And, and we talked last week about carrying the gospel forward because we have a mandate to, to take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples, to teach them, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. The message we need to take home is to be ready, to be prepared, to stay awake. Let us pray.